Hello and you're very welcome to another episode of the IFF TV podcast and today's guest is former Northern Ireland striker Jerry Armstrong who played in two World Cups and played for a host of different clubs including Spurs, New York and a host of other clubs. Check out Jerry's story as he goes through his whole career from start to finish and then he goes on to talk about his time in Spanish football, covering Spanish football in La Liga for 22 years and becoming the voice of Spanish football between the UK and Ireland. Check it out, let us know your thoughts, don't forget to like, subscribe and share. Here we go. Jerry, how are you keeping? Keeping well, thanks. Uh, trying to look after each other in this uh, lockdown situation. Where are you located right now in the world? Uh, we were had been in Spain for over five years, but we came back about 18, 20 months ago, back to uh, Northern Ireland, back to Belfast. So I'm back in Belfast now located. Okay, and uh, just what, what are you doing at the moment? Obviously, we're in isolation, but like you're not doing the La Liga anymore. So for anyone who's kind of wondering what you're doing, what, what are you doing these days? I haven't done La Liga for two years. Um, obviously, Sky lost the contract, and um, I've done uh, uh, a lot of work in the last year and a half for uh, Virgin Media down in Dublin. I go down and cover uh, Europa League and Champions League, and uh, obviously the Nations League as well with the... Uh, uh, Northern Ireland games, the Republic games, Spain, um, whatever they ask me. But uh, it's been keeping me busy over the last year and a half down south, down in Dublin. Brilliant. Well, listen, we got you on to talk about your career because you, you said to me there even before the, the show started, uh, you know, a lot of people don't actually re- realise that you're actually a player. So let's talk <laughs> about your career, kind of how you got into playing football because I was watching an interview on Off the Ball and you didn't get into football until very, very late in your career. Yeah, I played Gaelic football and soccer all my life as a boy. Um, my uh, grandfather was a founder of St. John's GAA Club uh, in Belfast, and I played for St. John's as a boy, Gaelic football in Hurling, until I was uh, 15, 16. And um, I started playing uh, a little bit of soccer in the streets, but not for any any uh, big team as such. I played a little bit in the Dan and Connor League for St. Paul Swifts and did, did pretty well. And then I got a suspension I got banned uh, from Gaelic I um, got sent off and uh, I was suspended for for four weeks Uh, I was fighting and um, then shortly after that I had to play sport I had to do something on a a weekend I used to train all the time and so I went down to try and play for Crummy Galbian the manager didn't know me I was with a friend of mine and we couldn't get a game there and then on the way home another team Old Park Celtic had said we're looking for players to play for us. Would you be interested? So we ended up playing for them. And um, I played well, scored a lot of goals. And then the manager from Cromwell came to see me that night and asked me to play for them. And I played maybe three or four games for Cromwell Albion. And uh, Bangor Football Club manager, Bernie Neal and Billy Neal came to watch me play at a game and asked me to train at Bangor. So I went to play for Bangor. But I wasn't really up to standard in terms of um, knowing the rules of soccer as such offside and and obviously Gaelic was a lot more physical then and Harlan. And um, I, I'd been playing Gaelic and Harlan and I, I played a lot for Antrim. I played senior football for Antrim and St. John's when I was 15 for St. John's and for Antrim when I was 17. I was playing minor, under 21 and senior football for Antrim. Um, won Ulster titles with uh, Antrim under 21. Uh, played against Mickey Hart when uh, he was playing for Tyrone. And then in the semi-final of the All-Ireland, we went down to Kerry. That was a few months before I actually signed for Spurs. I played down in Tralee uh, against Paddy O'Shea, Pat Spillane, that famous Kerry team. And uh, they beat us in the semi-final down in Tralee and uh, had a, a lot of fun. Uh, what a character Paddy was, had some great fun. And then obviously met up with Paddy in the years after that, before he died. God rest his soul. And um, yeah, so uh, my career was, was developing. But um, I had basically a Gaelic and a hurling background. And uh, my first game for Bangor Reserves as a sub, I came on with 15 minutes. And seven minutes later, I got sent off for punching the centre half. So um, it was one of those you had to learn as it was going along. But then I learned a lot at Bangor Football Club. And three years later, uh, Tottenham, Arsenal, a lot of the other clubs were after me. And I, I eventually ended up signing for Spurs in 1975. Terry Neal was the manager and he signed me and uh, I went and played for, for Tottenham then for five years and, uh, and, and en route to that I made an international debut for Northern Ireland which was uh, against West Germany then in 1977. They were world champions and uh, 
it was dream come true for me, uh, playing for my country, but playing up front with George Best, which was incredible. Danny Blansfar was my manager, and I remember the day before when he told me I was going to be playing, and I was going to be playing up front with George Best. So uh, I couldn't have been any better than that, to be honest, uh, Paul. So um, that was the start of my career with Tottenham, and, and uh, obviously Northern Ireland. And uh, after five years, I had I was quite a versatile player, and I played a lot of games for Tottenham as a fullback and as a centre half. Uh, Keith Bergen should fancy me as a centre half, and I played there to help the team out when there was injuries. Remember one game we played West Bromwich Albion away, and he was struggling for centre half, and he threw me in. And uh, it was Martin Cyril Regis who was a handful, uh, but I was strong and quick and handled them, and we won the match one nil. And Keith decided that's where he wanted me to play. And um, it was frustrating because uh, 1977-78, um, Tottenham, <clears throat> who were relegated for the only time in their career, uh, we were away to Stoke, and John Duncan was injured. He was the main centre forward, and I played up front for uh, Tottenham, and we beat Stoke 3-1, and I scored a couple of goals. And um, the following day, the Sunday, I flew out to Belfast, to play for Northern Ireland against Belgium in a World Cup qualifier. And I played the full game. That was my first full international match at Windsor Park. And we beat them 3-0 and I scored twice in that. And I came back. I remember coming back on the, the Thursday morning and then went into training on the Friday. And I thought, this is going to be interesting because John Duncan was fit and the manager had a decision to make. And uh, he was saying, fantastic. We, you've had two goals at the weekend for us and then two for Northern Ireland in a World Cup qualifier against Belgium. And um, I remember looking at the team sheet, and in those days there was only the eleven players and one sub. And um, I looked to see the thirteenth man as well. Sorry, they had like a, a twelve players, but they had a thirteenth man who travelled with the squad, wasn't it? I think Terry Phelan was saying that. I they had a thirteenth man, but he wasn't on the team sheet. It was just in case somebody took sick before the kickoff or before you announced the team and put the and put the the lineup as such. They always had a thirteenth man, but. Um, I, was, I thought, well, if I'm not playing, I'm going to be sub. And it was easy to make me a sub because it was so versatile, which is a problem. And um, I, wasn't even, uh, on the sub, I wasn't even on the subs bench. I was playing centre-half at Bristol City for the reserves. And Peter Shreves was the manager then of the reserve team at uh, Tottenham. And I couldn't believe it. And uh, I wasn't happy. So I went to see the manager, Keith Bergenshaw, and said, I didn't want to play at centre-half. I wanted to play up front. That's where I like playing. And he said, no, I see you as a centre center half. He said, we don't have enough centre halves and you're the best centre half we've got. So I said, no, I'm not happy. So I put in a transfer request, which he, he turned down. And then Peter Shreves obviously had to play me at centre half in the reserves at Bristol. And I said to Peter, if we're losing, you know, you've got to stick me up front. So we went 1-0 down with about 20 minutes to go. And he let me go up front for five or 10 minutes. And I equalised to make it 1-1 with a header. And then uh, he said, right, get back to centre-half again. So it was uh, that sort of a, a situation at Tottenham, and I was looking for a way out. And uh, I didn't know Graham Taylor at Watford had been following me for over a year and trying to get me to sign, but Tottenham were reluctant to sell me uh, because of my versatility. And uh, in the end, they let me go in 1980, and I joined, uh, I joined Watford and uh, Elton John and the boys and had a lot of fun there, great club, um, very much a family club. The camaraderie was excellent. Uh, I joined in the same week as Pat Rice had joined from Arsenal, who um, loads of experience, knew uh, football inside out, coaching, and um, was a fantastic signing for Watford as well for his experience. And he came in and played for many years after that at Watford. And uh, Les uh, Taylor was the midfield player they signed. So the three of us all signed at the same time. And Watford were, I think, bottom three or four of the second division then. And uh, we finished mid-table uh, that season. And uh, then it was planned for the following year, which was 1981-82 season. And that was the season, obviously, it was a big year for me because Watford went up, uh, which was the first thing that we planned to go up. And that was the, the, the setup from the very start. Graham Taylor, first game, we were going to Newcastle away. And he said, right, our plan is to win and to get promotion this year into top flight football. And he had taken them from the fourth to the third and the third to the second. And now this is the final stage of going to the, the top flight to the top division, division one. 
And um, we did actually go up that year, but it was also the year that um, I was playing for Northern Ireland and we were playing against Portugal and uh, Sweden, Israel and Scotland to qualify, two teams qualified for the World Cup. And it was a battle because Portuguese were a good side and uh, they'd beaten us 1-0 in uh, Portugal. And uh, we beat them 1-0 in Belfast and I scored the winning goal in that match. And then we had Scotland at home. We had drawn with Scotland away and we should have beaten Scotland at Windsor Park. But unfortunately, it finished a 0-0 draw and um, we thought we had missed the boat. But uh, Sweden were playing that night. Our game was an afternoon kickoff and that night Sweden were playing and Portugal were at home and I thought Portugal will beat Sweden. But I remember Martin O'Neill went into uh, his room in the hotel, in the Culloden Hotel in Belfast. And we were all up and a little bit despondent because we thought we needed to win the match. And Martin came up and said, here, I've got some news for you guys. He said, Sweden's 1-0 up against Portugal. And I thought, hey, maybe we'll have a chance here. And then he came back another 15 minutes later to tell us that Portugal had equalised. And in the second half, it continued. And uh, he came in to say Portugal had went 2-1 uh, down. And then uh, when he came in the next time with five minutes to go, I thought he was going to say it's 2-2. But it wasn't. Portugal were 3-1 down. And Sweden beat them. So that meant that we only needed to beat Israel last game at Windsor Park to qualify for the World Cup in 82, which was a fantastic uh, situation to be in, knowing you have one game left at home. And Windsor Park was packed. And uh, we scored. I scored. And we beat them 1-0. And that was us qualified for the World Cup. So it was a fantastic year for me, 81-82 season. Qualified Watford for the top division in football and also Northern Ireland going to the World Cup. And uh, every player's dream, obviously, to play in the World Cup final. So, uh, as they say, the rest's all history. We, we went over total underdogs. No, we get, nobody gave us a chance. I remember St. Greavesy on television. They were the, the big guys on TV at the time. And... Um, Basically, uh, they said, look, great to see Northern Ireland there. They've done well to get there. Big friend of mine, Pat Jennings, obviously, we played together at Tottenham. And he said, I wish Pat well, but I don't see them being there too long. Can't see them scoring a goal. Can't see them picking a point up. So we were very determined that we were going to do it properly. And we had a good good defensive unit. We were very solid. And we worked really hard for each other. And uh, basically... Uh, we went out there, we drew the first game, uh, which was uh, a nil-nil draw away to uh, Yugoslavia in uh, Zaragoza in the north of Spain. Uh, we were based in Valencia in the south in a hotel called the City Salar Hotel, which was a great setting. And uh, We'd done our training at the University of Sussex in Brighton for about 10, 12 days before we went to Spain, and it was hot, and it was good preparation. Billy Bingham had us fit. We trained really hard and worked hard, and this young lad in training who I'd never seen play. I'd seen him play maybe two months earlier in the Youth Cup final between Watford and uh, Manchester United. It was the Youth Cup final and it was the second leg. Watford won 3-2 at Old Trafford. And uh, the second leg finished 4-4 at Vicarage Road. And I watched the two front lads for Manchester United. One was called Norman Whiteside and the other one was Mark Hughes. And two fabulous players, great game. We had John Barnes, Nigel Callahan, Kenny Jacket, Steve Terry, all playing in the youth team then at Watford. And Watford obviously won the, the Youth Cup, which was a, a fantastic achievement. But it was the first time I got to see Norman Whiteside and little did I know he was going to be in the World Cup squad. And uh, he impressed so much in training that Billy Bingham said, look, I'm going to stick this kid up front. And he's naturally left-footed and we don't have any naturally left-footed players. Mal Donahue was playing left-back and Mal wasn't naturally left-footed. And um, Sammy McElroy, um, David McCurry, Martin O'Neill were the midfield trio. And Billy then decided he was going to put me back deeper in a right side of midfield role to support the midfield because I had so much power and energy. And um, he said, you know, you'll help it in midfield and Norman and, and Billy will be up front. And it worked out really well for me because I found I wasn't picked up as much in the World Cup. I was able to get more space. I was able to use my pace and power a lot and uh, I became a massive World Cup for Northern Ireland and obviously myself. And um, we uh, we played Honduras the second game. The plan was to beat them and we went 1-0 up. I managed to score in that match and um, should have scored again. I hit the post and uh, then they equalised later on a guy called Betancourt who was the centre forward and he scored a great header and um, finished 1-1. 
And uh, then as a result of that, we had to beat Spain in the final game in Valencia in their own backyard. And uh, nobody gave us any chance of uh, getting anything out of that game. But, um, you know, Martin O'Neill had a plan. He told us the day before by the pool. And he actually said, listen, you know they're going to come at us for the first 15, 20 minutes. We'll get behind the ball. We'll do what we're good at. We'll play them across the park and not let them penetrate, frustrate them. He said, and then we'll we'll create chances ourselves. We'll get two or three chances and we'll stick one away. We'll beat them 1-0. That was the day before the game. And um, it's sort of, the result was right. It didn't quite go the way we planned. We didn't know Mal Donahue was going to get sent off after 50 minutes in the game. And uh, But uh, I managed to score the goal. Big Billy Hamilton did fantastic with a fantastic cross from the right-hand side. Uh, he went past uh, Tendillo down the right and then put a great cross in. Arcanada made a mistake. And I... Uh, pounced on the mistake and stuck it in the back of the net so eventually we won the game 1-0 and uh, went back to their hotel to celebrate and that was us through to the quarterfinals to play Austria and then France and the, the Austria game it was a 2-2 draw, Big Billy scored two great goals and uh, we should have won that match as well but then France was the quarterfinal and if we beat France we go through to the semi-finals to play West Germany or Germany and uh, Martin O'Neill scored a great goal after 15, 20 minutes. And the linesman raised the flag and he was never offside. When you look at the replay, you can see he's well onside. Um, I always maintain if we'd have scored that goal, we could well have been in the semi-final playing German, Germany. And uh, people said, well, if you'd have played Germany, sure you would have lost anyway. But then it was about six months after the World Cup, we played Germany in qualification for the Euros. And... Um, we beat them 1-0 at Belfast. Ian Stewart scored the winning goal. And then six months later, we played them in Hamburg, which was my 50th cap. And we beat them 1-0 again. Norman Whiteside scored. So we beat Germany home and away in both games. And I don't think any other nation has done that in a competition against Germany. So that's a bit of history there. But um, it, it also, you know, the, 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 my career at Watford was great. I went into top flight football with Watford in the summer. Our first game was against Stavertson at uh, Vicarage Road. And I scored the first goal for Watford in half-flight football. We beat um, Everton 2-0. Pat Rice got the other goal. And um, we went top of the table after four or five games. And everybody said, Watford's going to get relegated. They're not good enough. They're a kick and rush team. But um, they didn't know we had some great lads. John Barnes was just coming through as a star. Nigel Callan. Another one, great crosser of the ball, fantastic goal scorers, Luther Blessed, Ross Jenkins. You know, we had a really good outfit. The manager was brilliant, had us so well organised. Graham Taylor was a fantastic uh, manager, probably the best club manager I played under. And um, we had belief. And uh, unfortunately, in a, I went to jump for a ball in a, in a training match and landed awkwardly on the outside of my foot and um, went over on it and broke my fib and tib. I broke my fibula and my tibia. So I was out for three months and managed to get back towards the end of the season. And we ended up beating Liverpool last game of the season. And uh, they won the league that, that day. But we came second. We beat Manchester United in the third place. We finished second, runners-up. And uh, I was on the move shortly after because I got an offer from Mallorca. And uh, I took the offer and went to try my hand in Spanish football. And that's how I ended up going to Spain in 1983. So um, 1983 was a, a very interesting year. It was a big gamble for me at the age of 29 to join a club um, who had just been promoted, but had a lot of good players who had been brought in from Madrid, from San Rafael Santander, from Barcelona. Paco, Martín, Paco Martínez came in from um, Barcelona. Uh, Andrea Sabido had arrived the centre half from Real Madrid. So they invested in players, but we weren't a team. We weren't really a team, and uh, we played as individuals the first half a dozen games of the season, and then we gradually started to formulate a, a decent side. And um, I had two good years, obviously, in Spain at Real Mallorca. And uh, shortly after that, I decided I would go back and play my, the rest of my career out in uh, England. And I was training at Queen's Park Rangers, with uh, Ray Houghton and I were both training together and we were looking to sign out. Ray was, uh, he was coming from one club. I was a free transfer, obviously coming from, because my contract was up in Spain. So I was a free agent. And Johnny Giles contacted me from West Bromwich Albion and he invited me to play for West Brom. And I traveled up with Gareth Crooks 
on a daily basis signed for West Brom and did uh, about six or seven months at West Brom because Johnny packed it in and um, shortly after that I then went on loan to Chesterfield to get some games because Ron Saunders took over but when Ron took over he wouldn't pick any player who lived outside a 25 mile radius of West Brom so that meant that Jimmy Nicol, Mickey Thomas, Emre Verardi, myself and Gareth Crooks, the five of us, we couldn't play. And I needed to play football because we had just qualified for the World Cup in 86. And I needed to get some games. So I signed for John Duncan the last eight games of the season and played for Chesterfield. And John was a teammate of mine, obviously, at Tottenham. And I was allowed to train at Tottenham and then just go up and play at the weekends for, for Chesterfield and uh, managed to keep them up. And I uh, had, had, had uh, some good games there. Played the World Cup in 1986 in Mexico and uh, we were in a tough group which had Brazil, Spain and Algeria in our group and uh, we picked up a point against Algeria. We got beaten 2-1 by Spain and then my final game which was Pat Jennings's final game and Billy Hamilton's final game 1986 Brazil in uh, the Jalisco Stadium in Guadalajara and uh, we lost 3-0. That's Kareka scored two, and a guy called Jossie Mark, that goal, I don't know if you remember it, Paul, when it, it did everything. But, they performed my time. Yeah, it was crazy goal. Um, he, he was a fullback, and he hit the ball, and because of the altitude, the ball looked like it was going three or four yards wide and three or four yards over the, the crossbar, and it just it deviated. It moved all over the place and straight in the top left-hand corner. If you had had two goalkeepers in, you wouldn't have saved it, but... Um, that was Pat Jennings' final game, 119 caps, and it was his birthday, the 12th of June. So um, he was, uh, I can't remember, was he 41 or 42? But yeah, I think he was 41. I think that day he was 41. And uh, we then retired from the international scene. But when I came back, I signed for Brighton. Alan Mullery was the manager of Brighton, and he convinced me to sign for them. And uh, that was uh, another part of my career where I went and played for four or five years as a player and then as a coach. I did a little stint at Millwall where I was on loan for, I think, about eight or nine games. I was on loan there and played up front with a young lad who was only about 17, 18 at the time, and his name was Teddy Sheringham. So um, that was interesting. Teddy, great lad, good friend of mine. and uh, Wonderful touch on the ball, great goal scorer. I was the target man and Teddy played off anything I flicked on and what have you, but had a good run with Millwall, met a lot of good lads there. And, um, then, uh, obviously, I went uh, to non-league football, but as I was going into the non-league football scene, um, I was starting to do a little bit of work uh, with the television, and George Best, who was a good friend of mine working at Sky, he had said to me, uh, would you be around uh, next Sunday? to play in a five-a-side game um, just for 20 minutes, half an hour for a television documentary for Channel 4. And I said, right, what is it? And he said, you know, me and you and a few of the lads, he said, we'll play a small-sided game to show how many touches you can get on the ball and how our small-sided games are better than 11 v 11 for your skill and technique, which is what they used to do in Spain. They played football stala with a smaller ball, like a size three ball, and then your touch would improve. And, and uh, that was the way the Spanish improved their technique. So uh, I said, yeah, no problem. So um, on the Friday, he phoned me, he said, are you still okay for Sunday? And I said, yeah. I said, who else is playing? He said, well, at the minute, he said, I haven't got anybody else. And he says, I'm just phoning to tell you, I can't make it. He said, so it's just you at the moment. Can you get some more lads? So George, I was laughing with George. And, and I said, look, I'll, I'll phone Kenny Sampson and a few of the lads who lived in London and get them to play. So we, we played and George didn't obviously play. But um, the producer afterwards, he interviewed us about the small side of games and about hard small side of games and, and playing with a smaller ball can improve your touch. And I said, look, in Spain, that's what they do. And he said to me, um, I was talking to George, he told me, you, you played in Spain and you speak Spanish. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, I'll start work next week, he said, on a project at Sky. And he said, Sky are taking for a year, they're taking Spanish football and they know nothing about it. Would you be interested in coming on as a as a guest and I said yeah I'll, I'll give it a go so the following Saturday I went and did my first game for Spanish football for Sky and they said it went well and said what are you doing next week and I said nothing so I came back the following week and then 22 years later um, 
it was still going strong until Sky lost the contract. And uh, basically, uh, we haven't had it on Sky for the last two years, which is a big disappointment for me, obviously, Paul. And I know a lot of people in the UK love watching the show. And they could see the, the young talent and the particularly skillful players who were in Spain. And I know that the Premier League has been poaching those players for about 10, 15 years now. But, uh, you know, it's it's been a, an interesting journey for me. But a lot of players um, end up getting into television. You know, I looked at Gary Lineker when he was playing at Barcelona. I was at uh, Mallorca. I remember um, speaking to Gary when he joined. And uh, he went on to be become a big presenter, obviously, for uh, football and BBC. So uh, lots of lots of fun and lots of enjoyment. And one of the ones I want to mention is obviously Michael Robinson, who was a big friend of uh, Graham Souness's at the time and Rob, who I played against. And he got married and he ended up coming to Mallorca, uh, part of his honeymoon. With, and Graham was obviously there at the time and I was with Graham. We were good friends. He, he had left... Uh, he had left Liverpool and his wife's uh, family lived in Mallorca and uh, I knew them and he came over and he chatted and I was trying to get him a move to Barcelona and Terry Venables was the manager and Terry would, would only give him a one-year contract and I think he wanted at least two so he ended up going to Italy instead and uh, we met up and had a, a night out and he had just got married and he said oh I've, I've had an approach from a club called Osasuna and he said uh, they're asking me if I coming to play in Spain. He said, what's it like? And I said, it's great. You know, I'm enjoying it. I said, different, the skill and techniques uh, more to the fore. I said, but they love, uh, you know, a robust sort of centre forward who puts himself about because they're all about skill and technique. I said, you do well there. So he ended up joining Osasuna uh, along with Sammy Lee. And uh, of course, I heard the news this morning that um, Rob had passed away and uh, didn't even know he had been sick or he had, was ill with skin cancer. But Michael Robinson was huge in Spain and uh, Canal Plus was the company he had worked for for many years and we did a lot of shows together uh, for um, the Clásicos. He used to be at Barcelona and I would be there with Sky at the same time and um, it was the same for uh, Madrid and he was a big Madrid fan. He loved following Madrid but that was the sad news I heard this morning so uh, RIP. Uh, Robbo, Michael, and he played obviously for the Republic of Ireland and was a fantastic guy. But that was sad news to hear as well, Paul, this morning. Yeah, definitely, especially, you know, it, just, it seemed to affect so many people. I, I woke up to the news um, and I've seen so many people posting about it and, you know, big, big names as well as yourself, you know, mentioning them. Um, you know, it was all over social media, even Sky Sports, everybody was posting about it. So he obviously left a huge mark and you you spoke to me on the phone earlier um and just kind of mentioned how how big he was over in spain like you said he had uh, presidents of clubs on his show and stuff like that barcelona um, madrid presidents, all friends for him and he brought them on the show and he did uh he did a show before the weekend like on a, a friday he would do el dia antes which is the day before which was the show and he did an interview and he'd talk about the games and he talked to top managers not just presidents but top managers and then uh on the monday after he'd have el dia de Suez, which is the day after and he had that show and that was his own show his own idea uh he was brilliant he was good in the commentary position he used to commentate and all the the opens the golf he'd go to go to america he'd come for the us open and he did that he loved his golf as well and uh, he was a fantastic guy and we used to have chats before about football before the games and we'd have chats afterwards and have you know Rob would love the glass of red wine the Rioja and we'd go out and have two or three bottles of wine and talk about football and about careers and life in general and just he was a fantastic guy and a good friend of mine so disappointed to hear that well I'm I'm very sorry for your loss and uh, you know thoughts and prayers go out to his family at, at this point in time as well but kind of I, I just want to talk to you about you know La Liga and you know you're kind of I don't think well maybe you do realise but you had such a how do I put it like a big presence over the, the UK and Ireland in regards to Spanish football like I grew up I, I have some of the best memories with my dad my dad since passed away but I've had some of the best memories just watching Spanish football your voice Rob Palmer on the commentary and just watching games every Saturday night I remember being in my dad's room, watching the watching the football with him, and you'd have Barcelona, Real Madrid, Valencia, 
all these even Deportivo back then were really really good you know so um and you you, you probably remember them sorry super Deport. that's what they yeah. called them super Deport, the fans well you obviously remember they played shelburne as well so we were obviously massive shelburne fans here too so all of those kind of things kind of came together but and then as time went on there was revista de la liga which was obviously a massive show and you were obviously a massive part of it. I think that you, your voice um, is a massive part of a lot of people's childhood. How does that make you feel, considering, you know, you didn't get into football till quite late, then you went over, moved to Spurs, then you moved to, to Mallorca, and I'm sure that's kind of where you got that, um, you know, learning Spanish and stuff, and that's kind of how you got your little bit of an in, and then the thing with George Best. But kind of just, the, you were there 22 years, you said, so kind of talk to me a bit about that and, and how that was, because... You, as I said, you're, you're such an iconic figure in that sense. Um, it's surreal because, you know, I was fortunate enough to play professionally for nearly 20 years and uh, I had a really good career. But then I was able to walk and step straight into the commentary situation, which was obviously a lot down to George and being at the right place at the right time. And um, I was obviously disappointed when La Liga finished because it has been a, a big part of my life. And... Uh, I was synonymous with La Liga and um, I remember the first game that Dave Lawrence was my producer after the first year, Channel Plus, or sorry, uh, Channel 4, who were, they were brought in by Sky to, to, to do the show, the producers, directors, but they were also training a lot of the Sky people on how to do a football program. And um, I became, well, I started off initially just as the uh, studio guest. And we had different presenters because a lot of them didn't know uh, Spanish football. It was something totally strange coming into the UK for the first time in 1995, 96. And by the way, the, the, the big team then was actually Atletico Madrid. And Simeone was the star man in the Atletico Madrid side. And um, there were some fantastic players who played for Atletico Madrid. You know, I don't know. I watched a, a little bit of footage the other night of Christian Vieri playing for Italy Aldi. in the Cups. And obviously, um, Vieri was top goal scorer in La Liga, and he was top goal scorer for Atletico Madrid. And when you had Simeone playing as well, and of course, uh, it was it was crazy, you know, uh, when you're you're watching the football and watching the talent coming through. But the following year after that, I was told the Sky that there was a new producer was taking it over for the first time of Spanish, and I'd done a year at uh, at Sky, but working because of, of Channel 4 through the producers and directors there and George Best that got me involved. But uh, they told me that uh, this guy was taking over Dave Lawrence. He was a new producer and he said he wanted to meet me for lunch. So I met him and we're having lunch. So he said, right, so tell me, Jerry, he said, you know, how, how are we going to do this? He said, we've got a two-hour program. How are we going to do it? And I went, what do you mean? And he went, so how, how are we going to set it up? And I said, well, you're the producer. I said, I'll give you all the information. I'll explain to you what it's all about. It's it's different to Premier League football because Premier League then was a lot more physical. It was all more about athleticism. I said, whereas in Spain, it's more about your touch, the skill, the quality they have in front of the goal. I said, you know, I said, it's it's a different type of football. And I was trying to explain this to him. And he says, and I said to him, so what, how many games have you done before in, in, in football? And I said, what have you been doing for Sky? And he says, I've never covered a football match before in my life. He said, I, I do greyhounds. I do Graham racing. He said, that's what I've been doing. Football. So he basically asked me how to do it. And I said, well, look, we need to explain to the audience in the UK uh, what Spanish football is all about. And it's about technique and skill. And I said, well, we'll do a profile of one player from each team. And the first profile we did was Deportivo La Coruña, one of the big clubs. And they had a centre forward called Rivaldo, who was technically fantastic, great left foot, scored goals with overhead kicks and skill and technique. He was sensational. He was a big star. And uh, he didn't stay too long, obviously, at Deportivo before he moved to Barcelona. And they were playing Celta Vigo, who were a wonderful club. And uh, they had uh, a couple of Russian stars. One of them was Alexander Mostovoy. And he, we, he was the other player I, I said we should profile because of his skill and technique. They had another Russian called uh, Valery Karpin, who was a right winger. Sensational player. But uh, Deportivo were a brilliant, brilliant club. And, and they went on to win their first and only title. I think uh, shortly after that, in the year 2000, Deportivo won uh, La Liga for the only time. But uh, they had so many quality players. Donato was a centre midfield player. Uh, Mario Valeron. Silva, the 
was a class player. Mario Silva loved watching him. He was the anchor man in midfield and he created and he broke up and started attacks. And you know, there were so many, so many good players uh in that in that side. And there was a, a little left winger called Fran, and I used to call him my man Fran. And he was unbelievable. What a left foot he had. But um, there were so many good names and uh uh, there were so many stars coming through, and we were the the, the, the voice uh, of of European football and of Spain, which was, you know, main attraction at the time. And myself and Rob Palmer, and obviously then Guillaume Balague came on board after two or three years as well. He came into the Revista de la Liga. He did all the uh, reporting from a journalistic point of view, and uh, which was great. We had a balanced, an ex-footballer who knew about football, and we had a, a journalist who looked at it from different angles, from the political angles, which. A lot of politics in, in Spanish football, obviously, with Barcelona and um, the Catalan club and obviously Madrid, the two Madrids, Atletico Madrid. But um, wonderful players coming through uh, all the time. And um, it was great to be a part of that and to develop it. And uh, as, as it developed, obviously, we developed and we started going out all over the world, you know, and suddenly there was people in China and Singapore and Hong Kong wanted to know about Spanish football and, you know, it's uh, that's the how me, the media works, and uh, that's when all the the internet started coming to the fore. But it was a big plus for me, and obviously my career at the time. So I, I spent a lot of years doing that and and seeing all the new stars coming through. But you're also became very popular. I mean, as I said, I put out a post the other day that you were coming on, and you're not necessarily associated obviously with the Republic of Ireland and even the fact that just because you're, you're the, basically the voice of La Liga that everyone was like oh that's class I can't wait to hear about them and, and kind of how we got into doing La Liga and stuff like that but they were it, it's, it's kind of funny the way because you play with so many good players as you mentioned you know you had uh, George Best Martin O'Neill Sammy McElroy and they're just at international level Pat Jennings at international level but when you bring it to club level as well you mentioned John Barnes uh, Norman Whiteside as well you mentioned as well so there's so many top players that you mentioned but people more associate you with the TV side of things which is which is a bit mad yeah. but what was it like the likes playing with the likes of, uh, of George Best and that because I'm, the reason I ask you about him is because I'm you would have seen the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo Brazilian Ronaldo Zidane Figo Roberto Carlos um, Xavi Iniesta uh, I, I think I've mentioned Messi already but George Best, on their level, you would have seen them. Like, you, uh, How could you compare? Obviously, they're different players. I, I get that, but I mean, on that, on that level. It's an interesting question, um, actually, because I, I've had so many people ask me that question. And it's a difficult one because when I watched George Best and I watched him training first and saw what he could do, and um, George never really hit his peak. He never fulfilled all his potential. But even before he fulfilled his potential at 18, 19, 20, 21, he was the best player in the world at the time. And he could do things that nobody else could do. And George was just sensational. And when you train with him or you're in his company, you know, he's such a nice guy. He's so down to earth. He just loved playing football, but he could train. He could jump. He could head a ball. He scored goals with his heads. He was brave. He could tackle. He scored goals with his left foot. He scored them with his right foot. But it was his dribbling ability, running with the ball, and he was unbelievable. I remember stuff in, in training sessions where he would nutmeg players, and he would do it so easy. And I remember in the game against Germany, and they had some big stars, obviously, at the time. And he nutmegged some of the stars, and uh, they, they obviously then res resorted to kicking him. And if you kick him, he'll, he'll keep doing it. He'll just keep nutmegging you. And then he would play... When he, they knew he was going to not make them, they closed their legs tight together and he would flick the ball with the outside of his foot and play a one-two off their shins and go past them. And then he would stop and, and say, come on in. And he'd take them on again. He was just a showman, but he was brilliant. And it was great having him as a teammate. And I'd never seen anybody who could do what he could do. And um, this was at the start of my career, obviously. And I was then fortunate enough playing with Glenn Hoddle at Tottenham. The skill and technique Glenn had was unbelievable. What a player, you know, and all different attributes. But when I moved to Spain, I saw Maradona for the first time I played. Um, I scored my first goal at home from Real Mallorca against Barcelona. And Maradona was in the team for Barcelona, as was uh, 
Migueli, as was Schuster, Julio Alberto. I mean, they had an array of talent that was unbelievable, but Maradona stood out. What he could do with his left foot, he was so quick, it was unbelievable. He did things I'd never seen before. And I thought, wow, what a player. But I'm looking at George and, and his career and the, the players he played with. And the, the laws of the game, you're allowed to tackle from behind. I, I see some of the kickings he got and he's, he just kept going. You know, Chopper Harris kicked lumps out of him when he was playing against Chelsea and different people. But George would just, he, he had this balance. He was like a ballerina and he could go 45 degrees one way and come back the other way. And the defenders going the wrong way. And he was just amazing to watch in training. But he had a fabulous attitude in terms of wanting to play, wanting to train, wanting to beat people, wanting to score goals. You know, you look at his record at Manchester United when he was a teenager, 19, 20, 21. And I always think if George had played now in this present time, he would have been head and shoulders above them all. You know, and I see Messi. He never, George never really saw Messi. And I think George would have loved Messi as a player, you know, because he was only coming through when George died. And uh, Messi would have been his type of player. And Messi reminds me a lot of George in a lot of ways. Although Messi's right foot is probably his weakest foot, but I've seen him score goals with his right foot. I've seen him score goals with his head. And over the last probably 10 years, I think Messi's probably the best player I've seen. Um, but George would certainly be up there. I've had arguments with Glenn Hoddle over it. He thinks Messi's number two. Um, he thinks Number two to who? Uh, George? Number no. Number two to Maradona. He thinks okay. Maradona is the top man. He's always said Maradona. Um, but there's different arguments, and it's to do with the, the time and, and, and the era that they played in. I just think with modern football now, George would stand out. And could you imagine what he would be worth? You know, the skill, the technique, the entertainment. You know, it, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's a very debatable question, uh, obviously. But... Um, that's my opinion on it. And uh, I did play with Maradona. I played, uh, been out with Maradona, had a couple of beers with him, with the Argentinian lads. Um, you know, I've, I've seen them played against some fantastic players. I played in the quarterfinal of the World Cup against Michel Platini, and who was a sensational player as well. But there's lots of players who come through. Johan Cruyff, another one, when he played for the Dutch team. And he was a massive name, obviously, at Barcelona when he took over there. So there's lots of different players over different eras who have uh, made their mark. But Ronaldo as a goal scorer in the last 10 years, unbelievable. I mean, the goals he has scored and uh, his dedication, professionalism, it stands out that he's still playing at his age in uh, Juventus and still scoring goals. You know, but um, I love the old Ronaldo. Do you remember the Brazilian Ronaldo? Oh, that's, that's when I've got no grown up watching football, listening to you. That was Ronaldo. He was unbelievable. Was I love, well, you know how much I love that Ronaldo. He was big Ron. He was class. You know, and you think of the injuries he had, and yet he kept scoring goals left, right, and centre. His pace, his finishing was unbelievable. He was just one of the, the most the favourite players for me. But then it moved on, and then all of a sudden along came um, the, the, the new stars. And uh, I've, I've looked at some of the stars who have come into La Liga. And uh, Zinedine Zidane, I have to say, for three, four years, I loved watching Zinedine Zidane play for Real Madrid. And then when Beckham came and he was knocking long passes, and Zidane, he's a big lad. I mean, Zid, I don't know if you know Zinedine Zidane's like six foot one, six foot two, and he had such a great touch on the ball for a big man. You know, he was just different class, and uh, I w- loved watching him. And then, of course, you had the Ronaldinho's who came along. And Ronaldinho what a player. was another one. Who- you know, I, I was blessed to actually have so much talent that played uh, at the same time in the era. Cream of the I crop, was... Jerry. Sorry? Cream of the crop. It was the cream of the crop, but I mean, a lot of these players then, you know, I talked about players on, on the television, and then I'd have David Plate phoning me from Tottenham and saying, here, what sort of a player is this lad? You were talking about this one. I went to watch him. He's such a good player. And, you know, and then I, I had the likes of Eric Steele, who's teammate of mine from my Watford days and Eric would be phoning me up and he'd be saying I'm, I'm looking at a goalkeeper and uh, I said I've been watching for three or four games now and he talked to me and I said right okay and I said who are you looking at he says uh, David De Gea He's, and he was working for Manchester United and he watched him maybe 10, 12, 15 times that year before they actually bought him and um, you know it's great getting an insight from people like that and how they watched him and I said well, he, 
he's a little bit thin. He's a little bit frail, and he, he, he could find it problem you see because they're used to getting free kicks if you put under pressure in Spain they get free kicks much more readily than they would do in the Premier League and I made that comparison he says I know he said but have you seen I'll send you a photograph of Van der Sar who was the goalkeeper at Manchester United then and he sent me a photograph of Van der Sar when he was 17 18 and he was really thin and hadn't got a lot of muscle on him he says but he, he developed it and he says I'm going to look after him so Eric Steedman um the hair came to Manchester United. He took him on one on ones, developed them, put him under pressure, put him under pressure that he was going to get from Premier League players, and filled them out and made him obviously a better goalkeeper. Which I think you'll 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 find if you speak to him, he'll tell you that. But these were the insights that we were getting, and um, you know, Guillaume and Balaga used to come in and tell me stories and say, well, you know, I've been talking to the president of this club and a director at that club, and they're telling me they're going to sign this one, they're going to sign that one. I said, really. And, you know, that was how it worked. And I remember one show he came in and said, uh, I've just heard, he said, Ronaldo. And I said, what about him? And he said, he's joining Real Madrid. He said, the, the deal's done. He said, they've, they've got an agreement. I went, he's, he can't be leaving Manchester United. I said, he's under contract. And what was his buyout clause? And his buyout clause was like 70 odd million. I said, they're not going to pay 70 odd million. He said, yeah, they're going to pay it. He said, they've agreed it. And he said, he signed a deal and it's all done. And I said, really? And then we discussed it. And then the next day, we broke the story um, on La Liga. We said that Ronaldo was signing that summer. He was leaving Manchester United and he was going to play for Real Madrid. And the deal had been done and all the rest of it. And it was all poo-pooed by the press and said, no, no. And then suddenly, like seven, eight days later, it all comes out that he had actually signed. So we, we broke a lot of big stories and, and started things. There was one fantastic occasion i remember steve McManaman had signed for uh real madrid and um i knew steve very well and i remember putting him in contact with real madrid when he was leaving liverpool uh before he signed and um we kept in touch we used to speak to him before the games we'd go to the hotel and have a little interview with him and meet him and we were doing a uh, classico at the new camp and we were walking down the tunnel and as you come down the tunnel um myself rob palmer and the cameraman are coming down and on the right-hand side, there's a, a little chapel at the top of the of the tunnel. And um, we went down past the chapel and, and onto the pitch. And uh, we met Steve McManam and we did an interview with him on the pitch, which was something totally new. Nobody had done that before. And we were there on the spot and we were talking to Steve. And then uh, Fernando Hierro comes past and we, we said hello to Fernando Hierro. And he spoke a little bit of English. We interviewed him. And Raul Campasso. You would never, ever get that in a Premier League game. You couldn't get that. You couldn't get cameras on the pitch. But um, the reason we did that was because Lorenzo Serra was the manager of Barcelona at the time. And he was the reserve team coach at Mallorca when I played there. And he was a good friend of mine. And he had given us passes to get us onto the pitch, special bibs that we could get onto the pitch with the cameras. And myself and Guillaume Balaguer and Rob Palmer were on the pitch, interviewing and talking to different people which was sensational to have as a build-up to our show, which was the big game. And it was the biggest game, the biggest classical, obviously, in, in the world on that Sunday. And it was a, a unique situation that we were in. But we were just enjoying it as people who love football. And uh, Rob used to play as a goalkeeper at Derby County, and he loved the game, just loved football full stop. And he was, you know, he's totally sports-oriented. He's written a lot of books, as you know. Pochettino, he did his book. He did Messi's book. Guillaume Balaguer, so another good friend of mine. And we all enjoyed the journey while it lasted, but um, it was a fantastic insight for us. And we we did develop a lot of things that have been taken on now by other other stations, I would say. Yeah, well, like, as, as, as I said to you there, you know, yourself, and then you go, you look at Guillaume as well, like everybody would know who he is now, uh, associating him with Spanish football. And, you know, a, a, a credible source, as you say, for breaking stories, a lot of the times when stuff is coming out on La Liga, or if if Sky Sports would ring up Guillaume and get uh, stories from, I'm pretty sure he was involved. Well, not involved, but he had a say in the Gareth Bale deal as well, going from Spurs, because that that was delayed for long enough, you know. Listen, a lot of the stories uh, at the start initially, it was different because in Spain there doesn't always have to be a lot of truth. I mean, if there's ten percent truth in it. In Spain, they would still go for it because it's a story, and they love that. But um, 
I remember once uh, Cain was talking and he was speculating a lot. And I remember Liam Brady, who's a good friend of mine, phoning me and Liam was saying, Jerry, would you have a word then? Because he's out of order. He's saying he's this and he's doing that. But Liam didn't care. It was from, he was talking it from a journalistic point of view. And I used to say to Liam, listen, I know what he's like. I said, but it doesn't have to be 100% true. I said, there's a, a semblance of truth to it. He will start, he will start the rumour. I said, that's what they do in Spain. That's how they, they get their stories. You have to understand there's so many... It's just sports newspapers in the press, and, and and that's all they do. They don't do anything other than sport. They don't do news. They just do totally, totally sport, you know. And then the Marca, which is the big channel, obviously for sport over there, but it covers basketball, it covers cycling, it covers all the other sports as well. And that whole that whole newspaper is just total sport. So game and uh, these guys, that's how they made their living, and that's how they develop it. But it became a skill, and Game's connections are unbelievable now. You know, the people he speaks to, the fact that he did Lionel Messi's book, it, it tells you, you know, what you need to know. He did uh, lots of the uh, Pep Guardiola, you know. He, he's done so many, so many big names now, and uh, Pochettino. So I have to say, all of that happened as a result of what we achieved and what we did. And we loved it, I have to say. Um, but still disappointed that we don't get the Spanish football on anymore. And um, it's, a, it's a different setup now, Sky. Do you think there's a way back for Spanish football and some, some other avenue uh, at all? It's a good it's a, it's just before, before, before I kind of get you to talk about that, it's just because, you know, I'd be always trying to find it. It's so hard to find. I'd be very disappointed because you don't get to see, like, Messi... Okay, I'm not going to say he's coming towards the end of his career because you never know what players like him. You look at Cristiano Ronaldo, for example. But, like, you're missing out on kind of good years now. Do you know what I mean? There's always quality players, as you said already, the technical players coming through. It's always talented player, but you can't watch it now. It's so frustrating. Like, Yeah, well, I mean, what the frustrating thing for me was coming from the background I had and the type of football and the way I played, and Spain, the first five, six, seven years of me commentating on Spanish La Liga, I was so frustrated at the free kicks and the amount of diving that went on and the play acting from players. You see, for me, and I always called it cheating. They say it's simulation now, but it's still cheating for me because, you know, and game used to speak to me and we'd chat and he'd say, look, it's part of the culture. It's like these technical players, they want to take on the, the fullbacks who have got to stop them. And they want to force them to file them so that they get a yellow card. And he said, then they can't tackle them because if they tackle them again, they're going to get a red card. And then that gives an advantage, obviously, to their team. So it was, I could see it from his point of view where, you know, it was a tactical thing where, you know, they had a talent and they used that talent to try and reduce the numbers to put you in a, in a, a better position from your, your team's point of view. So we had our, our own personal arguments over that. And that was down to cultures, I suppose. You know, in Spain, they brought up the culture of technique and skill. And, um, you know, and even some of the players knew they were going to be tackled. And this is one of the things I have with the, the VAR at the moment. I'm, I'm watching replays and I know the players dived, but the referee still gives a penalty because there's contact made. And it's, it's a gray area for me. It's different. I think there should be more clarity in terms of what the referee can and can't do. And of course, the official who's sitting in the in a studio somewhere looking at it and advising the referee. I'm not sure that's right. You know, I don't like I that. Don't agree with it. You know, I don't agree with that. You know, so um, I think VAR is at a, a crossroads now, and it has been before this virus started the pandemic. I think it's at a crossroads, and it's on borrowed time because if it doesn't work out in the next five, six, seven months, then I think they're going to have to go back to what what they were doing. You know, a lot of fans are so frustrated because you've got fans uh, in the stadium who don't know what's going on. And yet the people at home are being told that the referee hasn't given the penalty. It's been a fourth official or whatever. So they're getting more information. So it's discouraging people from actually going to the game. There's loads of pluses and minuses for it all, but you've got to get the happy medium. And one of my old bosses at Sky Sports was Andy Melvin, and he used to say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So... I think we need to look at football and it's going to have to look at itself, obviously, uh, when we get back to training, which I think 
we're going to see in the next two, three, four weeks, you're going to see a lot of, uh, certainly in Italy, I've heard that they're looking to start training again next week. And, I think Germany uh, they have as well. Germany, Germany were looking to do it a few weeks ago. I saw Bayern Munich were pushing. But you see, they seem to have turned the corner and uh, they're creating situations. But the Spanish FA came up with a solution whereby um, the, the players go back into a training camp and they don't go home to their families. They stay in hotels and it's like a lockup. And um, But everybody has to be tested. This is the key to it. You, you have to be tested for the virus. You have to make sure that um, you don't carry the virus. And uh, this, if they're going to get it back, it's going to start that way, but it'll be behind closed doors. So I'm not sure you can see a crowd at a, at a football match in the UK for this year. It could be next season before you see people going to football matches again. So football has to look at itself and see where it moves forward. I've always said about capping the wages. I think they're going crazy. I think they need to cap football. Wages have to be capped and the transfer fees are going spiraling out of control. And I did a piece on a, a blog I did a couple of weeks ago about um, some young players who are coming across and the, the transfer fees are Xiao Felix is one. He was 19 who signed from Benfica for Athletic Madrid, 127 million. And he had one good season at Benfica and they paid 127 million for him. And uh, he's an attacking midfield player. He's not even a striker. So there, there's a lot of gambling going on in football. And it's the same. You listen to the papers and what they report in the championship, how many clubs have invested tens of millions to get promoted. And yet we know there's only two go up automatically and one comes up through the playoffs. So there's, there's clubs who are going to overstretch themselves. And, um, you know, I think it's an, an awful big gamble for them to take and to try and get into the top flight football in the Premier League, which is worth hundreds of millions now to actually get in there. But um, there's so many talking points of football that we can go through, Paul, with the uh, it's untrue. But I, I just love, I love the banter. I love, you know, what we achieved and what we did on the Spanish team. Um, some great guys. Terry Gibson, uh, my own teammate from Tottenham. And he came on board about uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Fantastic acquisition. Another one who came in. Graham Hunter in Barcelona. Fantastic guy. Always on the ball. Really friendly with a lot of the players. His mate was Danny Alves at Barcelona. He used to speak to Danny all the time and get a lot of information from him about the team and what was going on and, and who was in control. And, you know, it was great to have that information. But that was that was how we moved in those days. Yeah, but you can t I can tell by speaking with you now, like, how passionate and, like, it, it brings a smile to your face. You can see a smile in the way there, thinking back to, obviously, a lot of great times. Yeah, fantastic times. I mean, uh, you know, when we went to the games, uh, the classical games in Barcelona, you would always bump into different people and it was surprising who would be at the games and, and at Madrid and obviously in, uh, in Barcelona. And then guys who were working um, for the Spanish TV and we used to bump into them. And uh, I remember bumping into Gordillo, who played in the 82 uh, game for Spain. And I bumped into him in a country position about 15, 16 years ago. He was commentating and I was chatting to him. And he said, uh, I was muy bien español. He said, you speak really good Spanish. And I said, I lived in Spain for two years and I've been working on Spanish football for a long time and I had a lot of knowledge. So we chatted and uh, it was it was good that, you know, when you see people who are playing football for the national team and obviously for, for um, the, a, a club team, and Gordillo played for Real Betis. And um, I don't know if it was he was surprised because I was from another country. But then this is where Michael Robinson comes into it. Michael, he really did portray, you know, um, the UK and, and Irish football particularly because of where he came from and what he did. So he, he made a big mark as well, a huge mark. And um, I, I, I still, when we were at Sky, we used to have Thierry Henry would be our guest on the Classicos. Michel Salgado was another one. Love Michel. Michel, great guy. Uh, I always uh, commentate. I, I remember a lot of things, and I remember when he played for Celta de Vigo, and um, he uh, was marking, and they were playing, I think, Atletico Madrid. And uh, oh, the little centre midfield player, he missed the World Cup because Michel broke his ankle in that match on a, on a chase through. Janinho. Brazilian in the World Cup. Yeah, Michel was chasing back after him and he took him out on the edge of the box. 
and he ended up with a broken ankle, Janino. And um, I always say, hey, I remember that tackle on Janino. And he says, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. <laughs> but uh, lots of fun, you know. And I, I love the banter you have with a lot of the Spanish lads. Mar Marcelino, Marcelo, who used to play for Newcastle and also for my club, Real Mallorca, the centre-half. He was a guest on the show lots of times. Great insight, great talking to the Spanish players. You know, and Mar Marcelino now, he lives in uh, Gijon in uh, Spain. And he's a big agent, and he looks after most of the top managers in Spain. He, he represents them, and he represents a lot of players, and he's brought a lot of players from Spain into, into the Premier League. And again, that's another insight, and uh, it's the knowledge and it's the connections that you have. So I, I enjoy all of that, and it still, it still continues. It's great when you have, like, I mean, I remember Harry Redknapp phoning me, and he was manager, I think, at West Ham at the time, and he was saying about the players, and can he could I tell him information about different players? And he just loved, you know, picking up knowledge about different players because I, you can see the I saw the improvement that Ozzy Ardiles and Ricardo Villa had when they came to Spurs in nineteen seventy eight, the first Argentinians to come in, and they caused such a, a big impact. And Ozzy still, obviously, mate of mine still lives in in London, and and Ricky comes over all the time, and and. The difference is now when I was talking to them then, they weren't speaking very good English and they learned English. And now when I see Ricky and Ozzy, I can speak to them in Spanish. So it's a, those are the pluses when you get back over. But um, I saw the impact they had. And I now see, obviously, over the last 20 years, the impact a lot of the foreign players who played in Spain, who have, what they've done and come to. You know, I talked about David Silva, Juan Mata. I talked about them when they were playing in La Liga and what, quality they had and of course the the, the coaches and managers and, and agents could see them playing and, and then they make the, the transfers. Cunaguero, uh, I, I talked about him as a, a striker long, many, many years, obviously before he, he came to play for Man City, but then look at the number of Spanish managers there is in the Premier League now and it shows you um, the impact they've had and uh, they've all managed in, in Spain and they've, they've all come over and, and had successful spells. Uh, in Premier League, so that's all part of the knowledge and part of the fun that it's been for me watching it happen. And uh, I used to cover the Premier League as well for ESPN out in Asia, and I did uh, the Premier League in the afternoon on a Saturday, and then I'd have an hour break, and then I'd go straight in and do the Clásicos, the La Liga, straight after that. So I was doing Premier League for two, three hours with one channel on ESPN, and then I would do um, La Liga for for Sky Sports. And it was great to see all the different leagues. And I, I loved when I worked at Eurosport. I used to cover all the European teams. I used to cover Portugal League and, and the French League, the German Bundesliga, the Turkish League. You know, it, that's I love the insight and I love the fact that I got that opportunity. So I've been very fortunate. Yeah, like it, it, just listening to you talking about there, it brings back so many so many good memories for myself as well. It just Kind of hearing your stories. I hope you got a cut of some of them deals, considering you were the you were the man behind them. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, no. I I was very good at accommodating people and looking after everybody, but um, I enjoyed what I did do, and uh, I enjoyed the parts of the play. But um, I mean, when David Beckham signed for um, Real Madrid, I commentated on his first couple of games, and then he contacted me and said he was he thanked me a lovely guy thanked me for obviously the kind words i'd said about him on and i said listen david i said when you have a bad game i said i'll be telling everybody that you've had a bad game i said but when you do well and that's what i've always done I, i'll call it as i see it and um I, I had a good rapport with david and it was good because um I then I was assistant manager in Northern Ireland for two spells, one with Brian Hamilton for nearly four years and then another with Laurie Sanchez. And uh, the Laurie Sanchez one was great because England came to play Northern Ireland and um, I was an assistant manager, coach with Terry Gibson, Dave Besson and Laurie. And uh, we planned the downfall and we beat England 1-0. And obviously David Beckham was the captain and Wayne Rooney played and Michael Owen played and Stephen Gerrard played and you know, we they had uh, Frank Lampard. They had a massive team out, and we beat them that day one nil, which was something we planned, and it actually worked out. It was great. We pressed. We worked for three, four days as a team on closing down and, and pressing on the first the first touch of the ball, and not allowing them to get their head up and frustrating them and getting them 
into that situation and that worked out. And then another one just before I left was we played Spain uh, at Windsor Park and uh, we beat them 3-2. David Haley scored a hat-trick and again that was something else we planned and that was a fantastic game. Uh, it was great to watch that and uh, the likes of Michel Salgado and Raul and all were playing in that game. So uh, I had a good knowledge of all of those players, I have to say, from my, my days as a commentator and I think all of that helps. But wonderful memories. All right, Jerry. Well, just lastly then, you, you're commentating with Virgin Media. Is that what you foresee for the future then, just before I let you go? Uh, no, I'm doing, I'm doing lots of different things. You know, I've been working with a company called Mob, and we've started a company called Mob Ireland. And Mob Ireland, uh, they do commercials, um, uh, but they do, they do a lot of work with Manchester City, Manchester United, um, you know, you see the players that have signed, signed recently um, for those clubs, and they 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 also uh, look after uh, Liverpool and and they look after Juventus and different clubs all over all over the world. They do uh, videos for them when there's uh, Bruno Fernandes. You remember when he signed for Manchester United, and they yeah. put the video. The video comes out, and that was that was done by Mob. They're based in Manchester, but we've now got Mob Ireland, and. Uh, we also do movies. We make movies as well and series. So uh, I'm doing a little bit of that. That I did a stint uh, years ago with the Dream Team. I don't know if you remember it in Sky One. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was involved in that, and the producer Rod Brown's a good friend of mine, and we've worked together. And I I worked with him for years uh, in London, and uh, he's part of the Bob Bob Ireland team. Uh, him and John Brocklehurst, and they're. Uh, producers and, and obviously directors and they're very good at what they do so um, we're doing things like that and that's something that I, I'm looking forward to obviously when we get the opportunity when this is all over but um, that's uh, another little venture but I'm doing lots of different things I'm, I think I'm versatile enough that I can do do lots of different things so uh, it's just what, what makes me happy at the moment Yeah versatile just like your football career <laughs> Yeah well the versatility was one part of it, and the temper was another one. And I had to learn to <laughs> curb that temper. It got me into a lot of trouble. Oh well, you seem quite calm now, but it's great to, to hear that you're keeping busy still. And obviously, when the pandemic is over, uh, hopefully soon, that you're you're going to be back to work. I just want to say a huge thanks for for coming on, taking the time out here, Dave, having a chat. It's been absolutely fantastic, and uh, something I'll, I'll I'll always have with me now. So thanks for that. My pleasure, Paul. Good luck. Thank you very much. No props. Uh, guys, don't forget to like the video. Don't forget to subscribe. And uh, yeah, don't forget to follow Jerry. He's on Instagram there, uh, jerry.armstrong.520. So make sure to give him a follow. The voice of La Liga. What a legend. Thanks for coming on, Jerry. Cheers.